John chapter 20, verses 27 through 31. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Then Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. We're kicking off a brand new teaching series this weekend. I'm very excited you're here. We're going to work our way through the Gospel of John. We're calling it Believe. And you can see that we're going to do an overview of the whole book, 21 chapters uh, this morning. It'll take us about three hours to get through it. Okay, it won't take us that long, maybe about 40, 45 minutes. But uh, you can see how it's laid out there on your outline. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of John. We just read uh, chapter 20, verses 27 through 31. You have to go to the back of the book to figure out what the book is all about. And John tells us right there in verse 31 of chapter 20. Also, grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along. Let me start off by saying unbelief is at the root of all our problems. Setting aside any physiological contributions, whenever you are terribly anxious, angry, or depressed, or struggling with pride or idolatry, it's because at that moment, at that moment, you've forgotten who the God of the Bible is, or you've never really known him. There's nothing more powerful and practical, and may I add, no greater pleasure than to know the God of the Bible intimately through his son, Jesus Christ. Nothing better, nothing more powerful, practical, and no greater pleasure, no greater pleasure than to know the God of the Bible intimately through his uh, son, Jesus Christ. So God's purpose for us in our study of the book of John is to believe. This is the first G of our 5G process of full devotion to Christ, making a commitment to Christ and to a local church family. The key verse to understand the book of John is John 20, 31, as I've already stated, and it goes like this, but these are written so that you might believe, and believing, believe that Jesus, I'm sorry, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, twice there he uses the word believe, and notice what he says, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, believing who he is, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The idea of his name is what he came to do. 
So, so it, it, it involves believing who Christ is, who Jesus is, and what he came to do for us. Anytime the, the Bible uses the word in his name, it's speaking of his character and all that he is, all that he does, all that he continues to do. But you'll notice, he says, that by believing you may have life in his name. Life. I'm totally convinced of this. The older I get is that there is a life in Christ that all the success in this world can't give you and all the suffering in this world can't take from you. Life in his name. That's the purpose of this book, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. There's not a better life in all this world than a life that is based on the name of Christ, who Christ is and what he's come to do for us. And so the word believe... How many times do you think the word believe is used, if this is the purpose of the book, how many times do you think it's used in this 21 chapters? What do you think? Throw out a guess here to me. Okay, there's some good, there's some good guesses there. How about 98 times? Close to 100 times. I think I heard somebody over here. So right at about 100 times he uses the word believe in this book. Now, it's important to understand what believe is because a lot of times I'll, I'll hear people say, well, yeah, of course, I believe in God or, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. <laughs> but as I start asking them, kind of probing them a little bit more of whether or not they actually really do believe, I find out that they really don't. It's more of a mental assent. So anytime you think of belief or you think of faith, you need to think of these three words, head, heart, hands. So believing in Jesus Christ involves our head. It's truth entering our head. As he said, that you might believe that Jesus is Christ, the Messiah, came from heaven to earth to rescue us. That you might believe that, Christ, that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name and understanding what he came to do for us. So, so there's this content of what we believe and it needs to be consistent with what the Bible teaches and how God has revealed himself to us. So that's, that's the beginning of it. So it starts with our head, understanding this content. It's truth entering the head, but it can't stop there. It's got to ignite the heart. It should bring conviction. You recognize that, that you are separated from God, your sin. Acknowledging your sin separates you from God, believing that Christ died on the cross for your sins. So there's that conviction in your heart. And so, so you can actually say that you embrace all of the Christian faith and yet it never moved down into your heart where, where it stirs you, it moves you, it motivates you. And, and you would be in the category, as James says in James 2.19, even the demons believe and shudder and they're not saved. So you can have head, heart, but you also need your hands. This has to do with commitment. So there's content to our faith. That's your head. There's, a, 
There's a belief about who Christ is and what he's done for us. That's what we believe, and that should ignite your heart and work its way out through our hands in how we live our lives. It's, it's this commitment. We make a commitment to Christ and, and to a local church family. And we make that public through water baptism as we declare our faith and identify with the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the first G in our 5G process, a full devotion to Christ. By the way, head, heart, and hands are all seen in Hebrews chapter 11. How many know what Hebrews chapter 11 is? You guys know what I'm talking about? That's the faith chapter. Faith is being sure of what you hope for, certain of what you do not see. And then it goes through all these examples, and you can see in each of these examples, head, heart, hands. Content, conviction, commitment. So we could say belief is more than agreement with facts in the head, It's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites. You want him more than anything. When I see that in a person, I realize they have had an encounter with Jesus. And so it's an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all other appetites that moves out into your hands, into your life, into a commitment of your life, giving your whole life to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to believe. That's what faith is. And so, we're looking at an overview of of this whole book, and we start with the first section, Roman numeral one on your notes. In the beginning, uh, chapter one, verses one through 18, we'll tackle that whole section next weekend, but uh, here's your first fill in the blank, how Jesus came into the world. And it's interesting that, that John starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Does that sound familiar in the beginning? If you go all the way back to Genesis 1.1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, there's a connection here. He's saying this is the God who was there at the beginning. And he's referring to, and as you see in that verse, he's really talking about the, the second person of the triune God. As you see the triune God there in creation, you can actually see the triune God right here as John begins to start his gospel account. God is one in person, God is one in essence, three in person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, was God. He's really proclaiming his deity, his divinity, that the Word. It's interesting, he uses the word Word for, who is he talking about there, anybody? He's talking about Jesus, the Word. And why would he use the word word? (laughs) Because it's God communicating to us. Now, how do we know there is a God? We know there's a God because he's revealed himself to us. How has he revealed himself to us? Through creation, conscience, commandments. He wrote a book. And ultimately through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the word. And so look at, if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 14. He kind of explains really how he came into this world how Jesus came into the world, verse 14, and the word became flesh, the doctrine of the incarnation. God became flesh through Jesus Christ and dwelt among us. Literally, the Greek there is he tabernacled among us. 
That's an interesting word picture. And he's really talking about giving us a word picture of the Old Testament, how the Israelites wandered around in the wilderness with a tabernacle. The tabernacle represented the very presence of God. And so in using that word picture here, he's saying God became flesh and he, he was with us. He tabernacled among us. And notice what he says. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, so in this first section, God is offering himself to us as the infinitely valuable and beautiful, all-satisfying treasure of the universe. By the way, that's what glory is. Glory means the infinitely valuable and beautiful, all-satisfying treasure of the universe for our full and forever enjoyment. Now listen to me. You were created by God, for God, to give glory to God. What is the best way for you to put on display the glory of God? By you finding your deepest satisfaction in him. By you finding contentment in him. That's how you put on display his glory. As you begin to live that out, people will look at your life and they'll see the glory of God through your satisfaction, your contentment in Jesus Christ. And so that's Roman number one. Roman number two, now we move into the, the largest section of, of, of this book, this gospel according to John, and it, uh, it's in the crowds. It's how Jesus interacted with people. And it begins at uh, chapter 1 verse 19, and it takes us all the way to chapter 12 verse 50. So this is the biggest section in his book, how Jesus interacted with people. And and this is really important because he's going to really give us an accurate concept of Jesus. And why is that so important in my life? Because your concept of Christ determines the quality of your relationship with him. If your relationship with him is kind of flat this morning, it's because you have a pretty flat concept of him. But when you begin to understand who Christ is according to to God's word, how he's been revealed in God's word, oh my goodness, the quality of your relationship begins to soar. But not only does your concept of, of Christ determine the quality of your relationship with God, but it also determines what you communicate to others about him. And it's really important that, that it's accurate to what God's word says, but it, but it even goes beyond that. Your concept of Christ makes you or breaks you in life. Your ability to get through the difficulties of life, the hardships of life, the pain of life, the suffering of life is directly related to your concept of God. If you're caving in, if you're really overwhelmed by all the issues of life, you need a bigger concept of God. That's why he spends much of his time on us understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he continues to do. And so he gives us, and in this section we'll spend a little bit more time in it, he gives us seven signs, seven I am's, and then seven testimonies. There's many more testimonies than just the seven here, but, but it's, it's quite really beautiful how John breaks this up. And the, word, the, the number seven, of, of course, is, is the complete number. It's the perfect number. And so he gives us seven signs and then seven I am's of, of Christ. 
and then seven people, testimonies of how Jesus impacted people's lives. So what is he saying here? Well, listen, faith is not a blind leap into a dark chasm. It's a step into the light. So as you begin to grow in your faith, you begin to grow in your understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for you. And what, what John is trying to get across here is that the Christian faith is historical, it's evidential, it's factual. You can do the research. He's giving you pieces of evidence right here in his writing. John was an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's take a look at the seven signs. Here's your next fill in the blank. Truths about what Jesus can do. We're going to zip through these pretty quickly. That's why I didn't make any of these fill in the blanks because we're going to, we're going to go through them. So the very, first, the very first miracle that Jesus performed, anybody know? If you've got your notes in front of you, yeah. Water into wine. Chapter 2. Jesus bailed out his friends in a socially embarrassing moment. Now, This is his big inaugural, big, here it is. Here's the big, you know, the big miracle that he does. Water into wine? We'll talk more about that here in a few weeks. But but what this tells us is that his friends were embarrassed because they ran out of wine. That was very embarrassing at a wedding feast. And so what it's saying is that whatever matters to us matters to him. He took care of his friend's embarrassing moment here, and he changed water into wine. There's much more to that than just that, but that's a miracle. Believe me. And then number two, healing the nobleman's son. Chapter four, Jesus healed the son of a desperate father. As parents, have you ever been desperate for your kids? Jesus knows, and he can bring healing That's what it says here. That's what he's wanting us to understand. Number three, healing a man at Bethesda, chapter five. This guy had been an invalid for 38 years and Jesus healed him. Number four, feeding of the 5,000, chapter six of John. Jesus multiplied the five loaves and two fish from a little boy's lunch to feed 5,000. Number five, walking on water, chapter six. The disciples were on a boat in a storm. Jesus came walking on the water, frightened them. But then Jesus said, fear not, identified himself, and they received him into the boat. (laughs) And this is what's amazing. And immediately they arrived on the shore where they were headed. Just like that. Number six, healing the blind man. Chapter 9 of John, Jesus spit in the mud, put it in the man's eyes, told him to go to Siloam and wash, and when he did, his eyes were opened. And then number seven, this is kind of the crescendo of, of his signs, the raising of Lazarus, found in chapter 11. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha, all close friends of Jesus. Lazarus had been wrapped in grave clothes in the grave for four days when Jesus resurrected him. Remember when Jesus was approaching the grave there, he was there, and Martha, remember Martha? She said, but Jesus, he, I think King James puts it this way, but he stinketh by now. That's King James Version. In other words, decomposition had already started taking place. If you've ever smelled the smell of death, it's horrible. Absolutely horrible. And the, and the writer here, John, is trying to make a point. No, de- decomposition had already taken place. And here's this guy coming out of a grave, and he had to go up and unwrap the grave clothes off of him. That is amazing. Amazing. 
That's the power of our God. So what does this tell us, the seven signs? It tells us that Jesus is infinitely powerful. He's infinitely powerful. He's infinitely great. And so what this should do is we read through these various stories, we work our way through the Gospel of John, it should create this sense of wow. Wow. That is amazing. Jesus, you are infinitely powerful. I think it tells us too, and I believe this wholeheartedly, Jesus still performs miracles today. He's still in that business. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think that's what, what it communicates to us. So I'm sure you've had this experience before. Wow, what a sunset. Wow, what an ocean view. Wow, the Cardinals beat the 49ers last weekend. Huh? Was that good or what? Some of you are wondering who the Cardinals are, huh? That's a football team. They're a local team here, and they're a professional team. In fact, they're going to be playing Washington today. We're going to pray here in a little bit that they would beat Washington, okay? No, we won't. We won't do that. But that wow, all of those wows are a little W wow compared to the big W wow. This is a big wow. When you begin to see that Jesus is infinitely powerful, he's infinitely great, this should create within you, if you're really in touch with the reality of who Christ is here, a sense of wow. And whatever you're facing should be small in comparison to the fact that he is infinitely powerful. Jesus' miracles are not just undeniable evidence that he has power, but also wonderful foretaste of the world we long for that is coming. This is a glimpse into heaven. It's amazing. I love it. So that's the seven signs, truths of what Jesus can do. Let's look at the seven I am's, the truths about who Jesus is. Now, where's the first time we see this uh, where God refers to himself as the I am? And we find it in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Remember, Moses is in the wilderness on the backside of the desert uh, taking care of sheep. He sees this bush on fire. He walks up to it, and uh, the angel of the Lord shows up, which is a Christophany. Christ shows up there, begins to speak to him, and gives him the order to, I want you to lead my people out of Egyptian bondage. And he's kind of freaked out about it, and he says, well, who do I say is sending me? And you guys remember how the story goes? He says, I am that I am. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, that's where we get Jesus's or, or God's personal name, Yahweh, which Jesus is part of that. And anytime you read through the Old Testament and you see all caps, L-O-R-D, it's I am that I am. It's Jesus, it's God's personal name. I keep wanting to say Jesus' personal name, Jesus' personal name too. But, but Yahweh, I am who I am, Yahweh, personal name for God. John eight fifty eight. Jesus says this, besides all of the other I am's in this book, he says this, before Abraham was, I am. Do you hear what he's saying? 
Jesus is making reference to himself as being the I am that was there when Moses came up to the burning bush and began to speak to Moses. I am that I am. Now, now what does that mean, I am that I am? I think it's important before we move on to really understand what, that, what his personal name means. When he says, I am that I am, or my name is Yahweh, personal name for God, what Yahweh means. Let me, let me just rattle these off really quickly, and I want you just to absorb them for a moment. I am that I am means he never had a beginning and will never have an ending. That kind of blows the circuits, doesn't it? Our little finite minds can't really comprehend that. It means that he is absolute reality. He is utterly independent. Everything that is not God depends totally upon him. All the universe is nothing compared to him. He is the absolute standard for love, truth, and beauty. He is unchangeable. He does whatever he pleases, and it is always right, beautiful, and according to truth. He is the most important and most valuable reality in the universe. Only he can satisfy the deepest longing of our soul. I am that I am. Let's go through the the statements that we find in the Gospel of John. The first one is, I am the bread. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. He's talking about satisfaction that we find in him. That's John 6.35. Number two, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. Listen to me, you don't have to walk around in darkness kind of wondering, what is the purpose of life? Why am I here? What is this all about? He came to show us that. He is the light. I am the light of the world. That's John 8, 12. Number three, I am the gate. I am the door. Whoever enters by me will be saved. You want to go to heaven? You want to have a slice of heaven on earth? Jesus is the door. He's the way that you can experience that. John 10, 9. Number four, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, 11. Number five, I am the resurrection and the life. This is what he said there at the raising of Lazarus to Mary and Martha and to the crowd that had gathered. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die. So as a believer in Christ, these bodies certainly die, but when you take your last breath on earth, you take your first breath in the arms of your Savior. It's like going to sleep and waking up into his arms. That's, that's the idea that he's wanting us to understand here. Number six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 14.6 of John. No one comes to the Father but my me. What does he mean by that? Way, truth, and the life. He's the way to God. He's the truth about God. He's the very life of God, the very life of God that we can experience through Jesus Christ. And number seven, I am the true vine. Abide in me and you'll bear much fruit. You want to bear much fruit in your life? You want to experience more of the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in your life? Yes, I do. I'm sure you do too. Abide in him, cultivate intimacy with him, grow in your relationship with him. I am the true vine, abide in me and you will bear much fruit, John 15, 1. So the seven signs tell us that Jesus is infinitely powerful. 
should create within us a sense of wow. Jesus is infinitely powerful. He's infinitely great. The seven I am's are teaching us that Jesus is unimaginably personal. Jesus is unimaginably good, and it should create within us an overwhelming sense of mm, rest, satisfaction. Kind of what you do, maybe you've already done it this morning, eating breakfast, or maybe you're waiting to eat brunch or, or at lunch, and you're eating your favorite sandwich or, or brunch or whatever it might be, and you do, mmm, this is really good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. And that's what this idea of, of the seven I am's are really all about. And so Jesus is infinitely powerful. That should eliminate pride from our life. That should humble us. No, no towering, no towering over anyone. No attitude of superiority when we understand that he's, he's infinitely powerful. And when we understand that Jesus is unimaginably personal, that he's good, that should eliminate all fear in our lives. No cowering, no, no attitude of inferiority to anyone that should create within us a humble confidence. When you have the combination of both of these working in your life, it gives you a really healthy, in fact, I believe this is the epitome of, of psychologically emotional health. These combined will transform you into a very humble, confident person. No towering, no cowering. No attitude of superiority to anyone, no attitude of inferiority to anyone. Humble confidence. Humble confidence. Why? Because God is great and God is good. God is powerful. God is personal. God is transcendent. God is imminent. And that's what people encountered through Jesus Christ. And it transformed their lives. Take a look at this. Let's look at the seven people, the testimonies of how Jesus impacted people. That's your next fill in the blank. And let me begin before we look at each of these by saying this, that you cannot meet the creator of the universe and remain the same. If you tell me you've had an encounter with Jesus and your life isn't any different than what it was before, I don't believe you. You, all you have is maybe, maybe right doctrine in your head, maybe it's kind of stirred you a little bit, made you a little emotional, but it certainly isn't something you've really committed to because when you do that, when you commit to that, when it begins to work its way out into our hands, into our lives, it will change you. Believe me, believe me, when you give your life to Christ, he will transform your life. If the infinitely great and unimaginably good God comes to dwell in your soul, you will no longer be suited for a normal life. You will have a testimony. So let me ask you this. What is your testimony of how Jesus has impacted your life? You should know that immediately. Otherwise, you haven't really encountered him. One of the things that we do in our game of life is we teach people how to, how to give their testimony. You know, before, what was your life before Christ, and now what is your life 
like now after Christ. We're really talking about this impact that Christ has had on our lives. In fact, you should have multiple testimonies. I could give you multiple testimonies about my own life, about my marriage, what Christ has done in my marriage, in our finances, in my own personal life, in my dealing with my negative emotions that have haunted me and harassed me. I could give you a testimony about all of those things. What is your testimony? Do you have a testimony about how Christ has impacted your life? And by the way, are you sharing that with others? If you really do know him and you're walking in vital union and communion with him, (laughs) nobody's going to keep you quiet. You're going to be so excited about him, you're going to want to share it with the world, the difference he's made in your life. Now listen to some of these testimonies. This isn't all their testimonies. I just took just a brief statement from their testimonies. And so um, let's look at these seven people. Number one, John the Baptist, John 1.34. And he said, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is God in the flesh. Nicodemus, how many are familiar with the story of Nicodemus, third chapter of John? You guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, like three or four of you. Okay, Okay. In fact, let me just say, this would be a good time to start reading through the book of John, okay? Week in and week out, and it'll mean much more to you when you come and when we get together and we talk about these matters. It'll stand out to you. It'll really make an impact. But Nicodemus, the third chapter, remember, he came to, to Jesus at night because I think that he was really frightened by the ridicule of the other religious leaders. He was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees despised Jesus, but he was intrigued by Jesus and came to question him. And Jesus was flat out straight with him. He said, you got to be born again. Now, here's what's interesting, because if you're not familiar with this, it's, it's, it's found in the story later on in John's writing in chapter 19, verse 39. It says this, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys about 75 pounds in weight for Jesus' burial. What does that tell you? There's something that happened in that guy's heart because now he's willing to be identified with with Christ who's died. He's going to take care of his body. There's something that happened in his life. And then number three, the Samaritan woman. Remember this woman had been married five times, finally gave up on marriage and was just shacking, shacking up with the guy, just living with the guy. And, uh, and obviously it was evident that she was kind of seeking happiness and contentment uh, through male affection. And it wasn't working so good for her. And so she encountered Jesus at, the, at this well where she'd go out at noontime, uh, which was kind of an odd time. And... And she has this encounter with Jesus and it transforms her life. Listen to what she says. She runs back into the village and she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. And she did a lot, okay? I mean, he knew everything about her and, and, and he didn't heap a bunch of condemnation on her. He didn't condemn her. He loved her. And she encountered Christ in that Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? (laughs) She's excited. In that whole village, I mean, they they begin to encounter Christ through that. 
It's pretty amazing. Number four, the official and son. We talked about this one. Jesus, this is the fourth chapter of John. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And then he inquired, so what, what, what time did that happen? They told him the time and, it was, and he realized that's the exact time when Jesus said that my son is healed. And it says, and he himself believed in all of his household. Number five, the man at Bethesda, chapter five of John, they asked him, so once again, the Pharisees despised Jesus. They're interrogating this guy, and they said, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And the man said, he told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And then the man born blind, that's chapter 9. I think this has got to be one of my favorite. And they're interrogating him through this whole process, the religious leaders. And so he answered like this. Check this out. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. I don't know that much about him. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I love it. It's as simple as that. I don't know that much about Jesus, but I'm telling you, I had an encounter with him, and he's transformed my life. I've never been more satisfied. I've never experienced more life change than when I met him, and as I continue to walk with him and get to know him. And then number seven, Lazarus, Mary and Martha, chapter 12, verses one through three. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment. This is where they would invest their money. We invest maybe in gold and silver and put our money in the bank account and try to gain interest. Well, this is where they would invest their money. So they're taking a big chunk of their money, if not all of their money, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with their hair, with her hair. And that, listen, the house was filled with, with the fragrance of perfume. What is, this, what is this telling us here? This is what it's telling us. <laughs> when you encountered Christ and you begin to live a lifestyle of worship, when you worship Christ, it will fill your life and fill your home with a sweet fragrance that will be amazingly attractive as you worship him. To encounter Christ is to see that he is more desirable and satisfying than anything, anything in this world. He's more desirable and satisfying than, than romance. He's more desirable and satisfying than all the money in this world. He's more desirable and satisfying than all the success in this world. Name it. Whatever it might be, he's more desirable. He's more satisfying. And nothing is more important in your life than to have a desire for Christ that is greater than any other desire. Why is that? Because sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with Christ. It shows our discontentment in Christ. 
And overcoming sin begins by reversing the process. See, sin arises because we desire something more than we desire Christ. And so overcoming sin begins by reversing this process, desiring God more than we desire anything else. So holiness is being so satisfied with Christ that sin loses its appeal. When you begin to realize that what you were chasing after for so many years was just insane. That's crazy. Why would I do that when I have him? When I can know him, when I can experience him, that's when you know you've encountered Christ. By the way, everything that, that I, I try to do, everything that we try to do here at Desert Breeze is to stir up your appetite for Christ because that's what's fundamentally wrong with us oftentimes is we desire a lot of other things more than we desire Christ. And, and so it's stirring your appetite with, for God. When you read his word, when you spend time in prayer, when you hang out with other Christians, when you come to church on weekend services, it should be, oh God, stir my heart for you. Help me to know you. I wanna see you through your word. I want to experience you. I wanna find that deep satisfaction in you. I want that sense of wow and mmm. God, you are so good. You are so great. To be overwhelmed by that. Seven signs, Jesus is infinitely great. Seven I am's, Jesus is unimaginably good. Seven people, you will be transformed into a very humble, confident person. If you went back through each of these stories, you would see humble confidence in all of them. And so in the beginning, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, how Jesus came into the world. And then in the crowds, this is the biggest chunk in, uh, in the gospel according to John, chapter 1, verse 19, all the way to chapter 12, how Jesus interacted with people. Now we come to the next part, which is, is I think it's, it's one of the sweetest places in the gospel of John. It's in the upper room, chapters 13 through 17. Here's your fill in the blank, how Jesus interacted with his disciples. I, I, I think this is probably one of my favorite places in the book, and I can't wait until we get here because this is, this is Jesus in the upper room. It's called the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 through 17. In the upper room is where Jesus broke bread, instituted the practice of communion, and spoke intimately with his disciples. And what it's showing us is that there is nothing better than intimacy with God. There's nothing better and they're almost, when you study through this, in fact, all four gospel accounts is that um, there seems to be four levels of intimacy with Christ here. Let me, let me walk you through this, kind of four circles of intimacy. You've got the 70, remember the 70 disciples that Jesus sent out two by two to preach the gospel? And then within the 70, you've got, you've got what? You've got 12. Remember the 12 disciples up close and personal with Jesus? But then within the 12, there were three. Anybody know who the three were that were extra close to Jesus? Name them out. Who are they? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. And then among the three, and so those, those three had experiences that the other disciples didn't have, have or experience. But among the three, who was the one? <clears throat> Yeah. <laughs> 
what was that? I swallowed something. I'm not eating anything. I swallowed my tongue. Okay, that feels better. Okay, let me, let me ask that question again because I think some of you answered that. So among the three, there was one. Who was that? It was John. John, the writer of this book. In fact, John refers to himself at least five times is what I've been able to find, at least five times the disciple Jesus loves. Now check that out. As he's writing, he says, oh, and by the way, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. I'm going to get a license plate that says that about me, okay? Oh, by the way, I'm the disciple Jesus loves. Did you guys know that, that I, I am the disciple that Jesus loves? In fact, uh, Carolyn Newsom last night told me, uh, my picture is on Jesus' screensaver. She was talking about her picture being on, and I said, no, 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 he's got my picture on his screensaver, on his computer, okay? And, and so can, can we all say that? No, I don't think so. I'm the only one that can say that. No, actually, we all can say that, can't we? Why is that? Is that true about all of us? Yeah. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. Just, just, just think of that. He says that five times in the book. And as he's writing, oh, by the way, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves, almost as if, like, you're the only one? I think there's something really good about that. I think that we should have such a deep, intimate relationship with God that we feel like that, like I'm the only one that he really loves, and, and, and almost in a, in a way of like, I, I, I pity the rest of you. <laughs> I really feel bad for you, because man, I'm telling you, I feel like I'm the only one that he loves. It's almost, he he kind of has that attitude, but I think he's, he's talking about something that's really important for us to, to grasp, but too often we don't live in the reality of this. Why did John have that level of intimacy with Christ? Does, does Jesus have favorites? No, Acts 10.34, it says, God shows no favoritism, no partiality. So why did John have that level of intimacy with Christ? Because John alone appropriated that place of privilege that was available to all. Listen to what St. Augustine says. God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. A.W. Tozer put it this way, every man is as close to God as he wants to be. Did you hear that? You today are as close to God as you want to be. The only person that's holding you back is you. That's why it tells us in Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? All of your heart, head, heart, hands. Hebrews eleven six, faith chapter. He says, whoever comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. If you diligently seek him, oh my goodness, believe me, you will know him, you will find him, you will experience him. Only those who count such intimacy a prize worth sacrificing anything for are likely to attain it. If other intimacies are more desirable to us, we'll fail to see and truly experience that life's most satisfying reality is intimacy with God. 
And now we move to Roman numeral four in the darkness, chapters 18 through 19. Jesus' arrest, death, and burial. That's your fill in the blanks there. What does that speak of? Well, substitutionary atonement. When you get baptized, you're identifying with the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He did that for you. He lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. And in John's writing, John chapter 18, verse 11, remember when they came in the, in the garden to apprehend Jesus, the soldiers, who pulled out a sword? Peter, and cut the ear off of one of the soldiers. What did Jesus say? He said, Peter, you missed his head. (laughs) No, he didn't say that. He said, Peter, put that sword back in its sheath. And he goes on, he says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So what what is a cup? When When you study in the Old Testament, you realize the cup is the cup of God's wrath. And he drank that cup for you and I. We deserve the wrath of God because of our sin. And he took that on. It's called, the word is used in the Bible, propitiation. He took the wrath of God upon himself. And in fact, in John 19.30, on the cross, he says uh, a number of things. He says seven statements. When you look at all four of the gospel accounts, you can see seven different statements that Jesus said. But he said this one statement right here in John chapter 19, verse 30, it is finished. Turn to the person next to you and see if they know what that even means. What does that mean that he would cry out, it is finished? Real quick, it's an important statement. Anybody know what it means? It is finished. How about this? Anybody thinking along these lines? Paid in full. All of our sins, past, present, future, paid in full. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't condemn us. He doesn't condemn us. That condemnation was placed upon Christ. But I think this is also telling us even more than just that, the substitutionary atonement in the darkness, Jesus' arrest, death, and burial, but it's also telling us that he knows and understands our pain and enters into our pain with us. What kind of pain are you experiencing? What kind of difficulty are you facing? What kind of deep anguish has got a hold of your heart and soul This is telling us that Jesus knows, he understands, and he is with us in our pain. Our tendency is to deny pain and problems. But if you numb your pain, you will also be numbing your feelings of joy over time. You just become numb to life. You've got to allow Christ to meet you right there, right in your pain, right in your suffering. Don't deny it. Bring it to him. Talk to him about it. Let him... Embrace you in the midst of that. Let him walk with you through that pain. It tells us in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 56, 8, it says, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? What is he talking about there? Have you ever had a sleepless night where you've tossed and turned? 
Have you ever cried over things in your life? He knows, he cares. In fact, it tells us in Psalm 147, three and four, the one who names and numbers the stars can heal your broken heart and bind up your wounds. In the darkness, Jesus' arrest, death, and burial. And then we finish Roman numeral five. Out of the tomb, chapters 20 through 21, Jesus' resurrection. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not Jesus, whether or not you like Jesus' teaching. I hear that from people from time to time. Well, I don't really like what he said here, and I'm not sure about this or that or any number of things. There's a lot of dispute about Jesus' teaching. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said because he is either a liar or a lunatic? Because he he made pretty bold statements about his death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, the Old Testament prophesies all of this, the coming of the Messiah and what he would do for us. But if Jesus truly rose from the dead, then he is truly Lord, and it would be crazy It would be absolutely crazy to not accept all that he said and to give your life completely to him. So John emphasizes Jesus' personal appearances to Mary Magdalene, tell my disciples, to Thomas, touch my hands, to Simon Peter, feed my sheep. And so our friends and especially our children need to know that walking away from Christ is walking away from the most incredible and fulfilling life of faith, risk and adventure and choosing a life that will ultimately be boring, mundane, and ordinary and never fully satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. So let me ask you this. Now that you understand what faith is, head, heart, hands, have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the most important question you'll ever be asked. It has implications for not just in this life, but in the life to come. Have you given your life to him? What are you waiting for? Need more evidence? Okay. Hang out with us as we study through John. It's packed full of evidence. He was an eyewitness of this Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is and all that he came to do as he reconciled us to the Father and rescued us and redeemed our lives. Give your life to him. Acknowledge your sin that separates you from him. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins and make a commitment to him. Give your life to him. Follow him all the days of your life. Believe me, you will not be disappointed in the least bit as you know him and walk with him and experience him. John chapter 20, verse 31, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? At the end of this service, my wife and I will be up front. If you are new, we would love to meet you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you'd like to commit your life to Christ, we would also like to pray with you about that and celebrate that decision with you. 
I want us to pray specifically that the Lord will use this study to deepen our faith. So, Father God, we pray that, that the life and actions of Jesus will make faith seem more possible that each of us will feel like we've sat down to have a personal conversation with the Lord about our life, making our, our faith more personal. And that studying the miracles and the works of Jesus will make our, our faith more powerful. And looking at the words of Jesus will make our faith more practical. And focusing on the cross and the resurrection will make our faith more passionate. And we pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys. God bless you.